month. We are continuing our series in the book of John today. We are actually at the official halfway mark in the book of John. We're moving into the second half of John's gospel, which is broken down into two primary pieces. The first piece is what's known as the farewell discourse. And we'll begin that this week. It's chapters 13 to 17 of John. That's the first piece of the second half. The second piece of the second half is what is commonly referred to as the passion narratives. And those are in chapters 18 to 20, and we'll get to them in a few years. We'll get to them, but no. (laughs) Although, I had this thought, and I shared it with the staff, and I think I terrified them, because I looked around the room, and they were all looking at me with blank faces. But when I reread John's Gospel last week, I found so many things that I missed the first time through. I thought, we're going to have to start all over again when we get done, but... Uh, Don't worry, we we won't do that. We won't do that. (laughs) Jesus has shifted his focus here from speaking to the world and the unbelieving Jews, and now he is speaking to his followers. He has final words and he has final instructions for those who would follow after him. He's among friends here, but for one. And we're going to be introduced to that person this morning, the one who will betray him. Another would deny him, but then he would be restored. And in the account we're going to look at today in John chapter 13, there are strong and clear parallels between Mary's anointing in John chapter 12 and this account of foot washing here in John 13. And you can see uh, the table in front of you some of the similarities. We find in both of these accounts that both actions are motivated by love. Mary comes to Jesus in love, out of the overflow of love in her heart, and falls down before his feet and anoints his feet with oil. Jesus, in our account today of washing the disciples' feet, also is responding in love. But what's interesting is that we also find in John chapter 12, and in this account we're going to look at today in John 13, that both of these responses in love, or these actions of love, are both meant with responses of indignation and so we have the indignation of Judas in John 12 and today we're going to look at the indignation of Peter and his response to Jesus washing his feet and then both accounts are followed or concluded with Jesus giving an explanation as to the meaning of the account and so we find some parallels between both of these responses we're reminded that many people and we saw this all throughout Jesus's ministry from the beginning of John 12 There are many that do not know how to respond and to receive the love of Jesus. There are some that even respond in indignation to his love. And in light of this reality, today Jesus is going to demonstrate some of the defining characteristics of the type of love that he is commanding us to live. And we're going to explore those characteristics today as we break down our text and, and we're actually going to answer this, this question. What does Jesus' demonstration of love teach us about the love he is calling us to demonstrate? What does Jesus' demonstration of love in John chapter 13 teach us about the kind of love that he is calling us to demonstrate? Before we begin to unpack that question, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for its power, for its truth, for its accuracy. Lord, we're thankful for this time every week where we can huddle together a congregation united by your Son, Jesus Christ. 
And we come with anticipation every week, Lord, knowing that your spirit is at work right now in these moments. He is going out, preparing hearts, convicting hearts and minds of how we need to change. And today, Lord, we are confronted with a powerful example of love from your son. Father, as we explore this text, I pray that you would put before us the characteristics that you would have us emulate from Jesus' example, that we might leave this place today with a better knowledge of how you desire for us to love you and how you desire for us to love those people that you've placed in our pathways even this coming week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13, and today we're in verses 1 to 17. John 13, 1 to 17. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands, my head. Jesus said, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he has said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's still before the feast of Passover, but already knowing the hour of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and that they were imminent, Jesus is sitting down here for a feast with his disciples. His time to depart from the world to the Father is near, And this reality gives us pause to reflect on the many times that in the ears of his own disciples, Jesus may have appeared to contradict himself. Let's take a look at this together. And and like I said, we do this together on Sunday morning. I'm going to invite you to participate today. We're going to look at this together as a congregation. Tell me what verse 1 in chapter 13 has in common with the next three verses we're going to look at. So let's look at verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. 
depart out of this world to the Father. All right, now let's look at three more verses. They're going to be on the screen here in front of you. And I want you to tell me in the next three verses that we explore, what do they have in common with 13 verse 1? So we're going to start in John chapter 7 verse 33. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. In John chapter 16, 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. John chapter 17, verse 11, For I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And he continues. Can we catch what those verses have in common with 13 verse 1? All of those verses talk about Jesus departing, departing. And so the question as we open up this chapter and we explore this is, how did the disciples understand that Jesus is saying this in light of the things that he had said to them before and in light of some of the things that we know Jesus says regarding the reality that he's always with us? And I just gave you the answer to what the next three verses have in common, but that's okay. Let's look at them anyway. John chapter 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Be with him. Abide with him. Matthew chapter 28, teaching him to observe all these things I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always. And Revelation 3.20, which we know, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus will be with us. You know, as I was thinking about this week, I thought, have you ever stood, this happens a lot in our house now. We have these two little guys at home from Haiti. They didn't have many doors in Haiti where they were. Outside, inside, doors closing, windows opening, closing. They don't really exist down there. Everything's open. And so every once in a while, not every once in a while, every few minutes it seems like, they'll open up the door and just stand there in the doorway. And, and maybe you've done this before, open, close, open, close, stand in the doorway, and somebody asks you the question, what? Are you coming or going? Make a decision. Jesus, are you coming or going here? Are you leaving us? Are you staying with us? What's happening here? And it's interesting, as often is the case with questions like this pertaining to Jesus, the answer to that question is, yes. Yes. It's a great paradox with our God. One that we'll never be able to fully understand on this side of heaven. It's a character of His very being that the Son of God also shares. He is imminent. He is with us. Yet He's also transcendent. He's high Above us, he is both. Jesus' physical presence would be removed from the vision of the disciples. But what would he do? He would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who was also God. This is a beautiful characteristic of God's love that, that only he's able to communicate to us. His nearness, that he's near to us, and his transcendence, that he's high above us. And as we begin to unpack the kind of love that Jesus is calling us towards, it's important for us to pause and understand that we can never perfectly and fully emulate God's love because He is God and we are not. Simple reminder, but good reminders. And we see this 
in so many ways that Jesus is able to love. He understands this well. He's able to demonstrate uh, love to us with these clear events like we see in John chapter 13, just like this foot washing. But there are attributes of Jesus' love that we can never communicate or demonstrate to one another here on earth. And you know what's interesting? Why all this is happening at this table, the devil's sole victory, albeit short-lived, is in the presence of Jesus in this scene. The devil had already been successful at turning the heart of Judas, the great betrayer. Judas is sitting at the table with Jesus. He's breaking bread together with him while it's already in his heart and already in his mind to betray the Messiah. Now what's amazing is that Jesus knows this reality. He's aware of it. His disciples have no idea, but he's going to alert them in the text to the presence of a saboteur who's at the table. It's, it's interesting here. Jesus knows all this, yet you don't get any sense in the text that he's stressed out or anxious. He's confident. He's composed. He's not afraid of the man who would kiss his cheek in front of the soldiers to betray him. It's amazing. I mean, if I knew that somebody was sitting at a table with me and, and I had the foresight to understand that that person was going to betray me, I may be a little bit fearful. I might be a little anxious of that person. This is not Jesus' disposition here. He knows his purpose. He knows from where he came. He knows to whom he is going back to. He knew that all things had been given into his hands. The victory was secure. Jesus could kneel in front of his enemy. Could kneel in front of his enemy and he could wash his enemy's feet with confidence that Judas's betrayal was ultimately part of God's perfect plan for his life and the salvation of the world. And so we begin to see the measures of the great example of Jesus' love right here in verse 3. In spite of knowing that his betrayer is at the table with his disciples, he washes his feet anyway. And it's a note for us, church, the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to is not only for those who reciprocate that love. We are to love our enemies as well as our friends. And we can read that statement with a subtle change. It should also be true. We are to love our enemies as well as we love our friends. And this truth speaks to the broader reality that we must demonstrate this love towards others regardless of how we might feel towards them on the inside. When God places someone in our pathways and calls us to serve them, just because they may be our enemies doesn't mean we shouldn't respond. And sometimes I think in our culture today, we think that we're justified when the person's wronged us that we don't respond when there's a need. And we kind of, we kind of chalk it up as, well, they're getting their due. They got what's coming to them. And friends, this couldn't be any further from Jesus' heart. Jesus knows Judas's heart. He's aware of what Judas is going to do. And he cares for him in these moments anyway. And we can't forget, it's not like Jesus said, okay, I'm going to wash everybody's feet, but Judas is getting a little bit less water on his. 
We don't see that here in the text. That's not Jesus' heart. He cleans Judas' feet in the same manner that he cleaned the feet of the men who would remain faithful to him. Oh, by the way, one of these men would also deny him three times. Verse 4, now put yourself in this room, put yourself at this table with these believers, Jesus being the guest of honor. In verse 4, this is amazing, he rises up from the table in the midst of the meal. Imagine the scene, this did not happen. Interrupting a meal like this. Men reclining, enjoying this food, and suddenly the guest of honor gets up. And not only does he get up, but he takes off his outer garment, whatever it might be, a cloak, a robe, however. And he walks over and he picks up a towel. These are demonstrations that something significant is about to happen because they were not common things. He walks over and he picks up a towel and he ties this towel around his waist. He moves towards the water, to pour it into a basin. And can you imagine the confusion? What is going on? This was a position, foot washing, friends, was a position that was reserved for Jewish slaves or servants, sometimes women, but never a guest. Never a guest. What was Jesus doing? He's serving His disciples, His friends. And so if the first characteristic of love is is that we are to love our enemies as well as our friends, then the second characteristic is that this love is to be done in service to others. Jesus is going to serve His disciples and His friends. It's the idea, friends, that people are more valuable than possessions. He cares about the people that the Lord had drawn into His pathways right then and right there in His life and what their needs were. These were the people in Jesus' immediate setting that God had called for him to love. And we don't have to have any doubt that God called Jesus to serve them in this exact particular way. And really, this foot washing, it's powerfully symbolic in two distinct yet similar ways. First, Jesus is serving his disciples and he's teaching us through the symbolism of this event that he is the one who cleans us up. Jesus is the one who cleans us up, friends. We don't come to Jesus, then clean ourselves up. That's not how it works. Jesus, God draws us to Jesus. Jesus does the work of cleaning us up. God gets the glory. We don't do the work. We respond to the work. And through our response, the Spirit produces His fruit through us. The work that God has already prepared in advance. But even then, isn't it it interesting? Uh, We talk about mature believers producing fruit. That's really important, by the way. Mature believers, not just mature, mature believers, any true, genuine disciple, believer in Jesus Christ should have evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. That's absolutely a reality. But whose fruit is it? The fruit of the mature believer? The fruit of the Spirit? Even the fruit belongs to Him. It's all His fruit. It all belongs to Him. Our lives are laid down, friends, in service to each other for the glory of God. And in a second, similar yet distinct fashion, we see something else curious happening here. Jesus is rising up from this table and He's laying aside His outer garments. And our minds should move to seeing Him laying aside His glory 
to take on the form of a servant and come to this earth. The kind of love that Jesus is calling us to demonstrate is shown to friends and enemies alike. It's lived in the service of others and it's done in humility. And there's a great paradox here, isn't there, church? I mean, think about who Jesus is. He's the King of glory. The King of glory is humbled as a servant at the feet of men in, in what would have been considered an utterly gloryless position in the eyes of man. Yet in this moment, Jesus is full of glory in the eyes of God. Fearless to do this, to lower himself to his disciples and wash their feet. And you can almost see Jesus as we work through the passage. He takes this towel that's wrapped around his waist. Now think about what he's going to do. People in the Middle East, when they walked and they came to a meal, they were walking in sandals, right? Which meant their feet were exposed. It was often warm in the Middle East, hot. People would sweat. Their feet were exposed. Dirt sticks to sweaty feet. These are dirty, stinky feet. That's what they are. Let's not try to sugarcoat what's happening here because Jesus is doing it. This is important for us to grasp. He's bending down this towel wrapped around his waist and he's picking up the sweaty, stinky, dirty feet of the disciples in his hand, pouring water on those feet and taking a towel and wiping them clean. And, and imagine for the second what began at the beginning of this act as a perfectly pure, white, unblemished towel as it moved from disciple to disciple to disciple. What do you think happened to that towel? Became stained with the dirtiness of man. Sounds a lot like salvation to me. That which is perfectly pure and clean, stooping down, becoming dirty, so that someone else might be cleansed. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And friends, this kind of love should constrain us to a response of obedience. How should one receive and live in light of this type of love, a love displayed so freely, so sacrificially? We would think in this situation how we would respond, oh, thank you, Lord, with such love and such thankfulness. But of all the responses, there's only one here that John pinpoints. And again, it's a response of indignation. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. That should always alert our minds when Simon's the, the main guy in the narrative. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said, what I am going to do, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Verse 8, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Some people just don't like to have their feet touched. Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon said, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands, my head. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean. So here's Jesus. He's moving around the table. And he gets to Peter, and, and Peter struggles mightily throughout all the Gospels in his responses to Jesus, doesn't he? I mean, we can, we can read the four Gospels and get a clear understanding of Peter's personality. He's bold, 
He's the first one of all the disciples to step out onto the water, right? There's Jesus. They think he's a ghost. No, is it a ghost? What is it, an apparition? I don't know. I think it's Jesus. I'm going to step out there and go see. That was his personality. Pretty bold, pretty brave. He's the one Jesus affectionately calls Stonehead, Cephas. The same one who Jesus said he would use to help build his church. This is the same guy who Jesus also says, get behind me, Satan. He's a Jesus denier, Peter. Three times, three times over. Yet on the beach, Jesus restores him and confirms his calling to build his church. And here in another infamous scene from Peter's life, he's not about to let the Lord wash his feet. His question in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus' response is clear. Look, you're not going to understand this now, but, but later you will. And instead of just listening, I mean, in that moment, I would like to believe that I would have been like, okay, Jesus, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Go ahead. I don't like to have my feet touched, but do what you need to do. Peter doesn't do that. Somehow he believes that he's in a position of authority to double down. And his words actually are stronger here than the, in the Greek than they are in our English. I want you to think about this, and many of you, this will be an easy illustration. Think about a child in your home that you've asked to do something, and they've refused to do it, and you've asked them again, and this time they crossed their arms, stomped their foot. Some of us know that that looks like in our homes. That's literally the picture of Peter here. You shall never wash my feet. In all of eternity, Jesus, you're not touching these guys. Not going to happen. No way that I'm going to allow you to do this to me. Peter is a man of principle. We know that from his life and from his personality. He's a black and white, all or nothing kind of guy. Jesus is Lord in his mind. He's already confessed that. Jesus is rabbi. Jesus is friend. Lords don't wash the feet of their servants. Rabbis don't wash the feet of their students. And friends don't wash other friends' feet. It's not supposed to happen. In Peter's mind, the job of a servant was in no way going to be performed on him by a king. So we have to love how Jesus meets Peter's all-or-nothing personality, right? This is Jesus knows the way perfectly how to respond to every one of his sheep. And this is a perfect example of Jesus' perfect response to Peter's all-or-nothing proposition. Okay, Mr. Stonehead. Look at the second half of verse 8. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. All or nothing. All or nothing, Peter. Mic drop. Jesus can walk off the stage. Which way are we going to go here? Take a look at the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. It's magnificent. There's so much evidence of his extravagant love for us and what he's doing in this scene. In this scene, Jesus comes as a... Take take it back to the beginning of Jesus' life. How does Jesus come to earth? He comes to earth as a baby in the form of a servant, born in a stable, laid in a manger. He allows himself while on earth to be baptized by a man. He walks the earth and during his time on the earth, he serves and he meets the needs of all the various individuals that God draws into his path. Then at the end of his earthly ministry, here he is, 
all the way towards the end. And what's he doing? He's stooping down and he's washing his disciples' feet. And it's symbolic of the reality that Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's leaving the world just as he came into the world. A true servant from beginning to end. The ministry of Jesus is characterized by humility, by service, compassion, love. Peter's response, he's shocked. He's shocked. And he doesn't want to give up fellowship with Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised by his response. All or nothing, what does he say? Jesus, wash everything. (laughs) Okay, my head, my hands, my feet, just wash it all. This was not Jesus' intention, however. His intention was to present himself as a servant to his disciples, not to give them baths. Jesus reminds Peter that he had already taken a bath. But there's something bigger going on here, friends. This is truly incredible. Some other things being conveyed. Many commentators agree that Jesus is alluding to a reality related to our salvation and daily walk with him here. Once we have bathed, meaning once we've been washed by Jesus' blood, once we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is no need to be bathed again. Yet, because we live in this world, and I want to say Greg's prayer this morning so beautifully drew this out. If you listen at the beginning of his prayer, he spent a few moments in confession. Yet because we live in this world and our flesh is some kind, sometimes constrained and falls to the effects of this world system, confession of daily sins and transgression is still important. It's like a washing of the feet. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we all know this verse. If we do what? Confess. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and We might sit here and say, well, I thought my sins were forgiven. And if they've all been forgiven, why do I still need to confess? And it's interesting because James tells us that confession should be a regular part of our fellowship as a congregation. James chapter 5, verse 16, therefore, confess. I heard Greg doing this beautifully this morning up here. And you know, it's interesting, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, an act of trying to shame or guilt one another, though sometimes that's how it's often regarded. That's not what confession is. Church, confession is simply a way to remind and to encourage one another that we have a great need for Jesus, that I still have as great of a need for Jesus today as I did the moment that he called me into salvation. And we don't have it all put together, that we fall short sometimes. We fall short of his glory. We deserve death, but thanks be to God that he's forgiven our sins. Our confession is part of our worship. It's an acknowledgement of our continual need for Jesus. Our dependence on him and his spirit to continue to clean us up and produce his fruit within our lives. Jesus stands before us, the one between God and man declaring us innocent. Our sins are forgiven, removed as far as us from the east to the west. But church, isn't it true we still live in a world and a world system that's mired by sin and death and do our feet sometimes get dirty? They do. They do. We mess up sometimes. 
confession is a reminder that though our feet get dirty in this world, we have a Savior who can clean us up and who's made us right with God. Jesus isn't just giving an illusion here, but he's also showing us that there is a need for a continual washing of feet. We don't need to be bathed again. By his blood, we've been saved and brought together with Christ. But confession is important. It's important. Jesus is also going to use this opportunity, by the way, to alert the disciples to the reality that though some of them had been cleaned, there was still one who was in their presence that was what? Unclean. Right? Look at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew he was, who was about to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus had made that which was impure, pure, cleansing their feet with water, then later washing them in his word. Remember in John chapter 15, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I had spoken to you. Yet, despite or in spite of this, one remained in their presence who was unclean. A clue, friends, that there was still impurity that Jesus had to deal with. There was a confrontation that was looming. The light of Christ, the light of the world, would soon be drawn cheek to cheek with the dark heart of one of his own disciples, Judas. His disciples now knew that something was amiss. And we're going to unpack the reality of Judas's treachery further in two weeks, but let's continue and finish this morning by exploring Jesus' definition for this incredible act of love that he showed to his disciples. Verses 12 to 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. No doubt that Jesus washed the feet of Judas, Judas even after refer, referring to his betrayal, just like he did with the other disciples. But there's something else interesting I think that we see here. Jesus has laid aside his outer garments, and now what's he doing with them? He's picking them up, and he's putting them back on. And as I read that this week, my mind was taken to John chapter 10. We already studied this a few weeks back. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says, but what does he do? He lays it down and he has the authority to lay it down and he has the authority to what? Pick it back up again. Isn't the book of John so beautiful? These pictures all throughout. I mean, this is the entire book is like this. There's these beautiful pictures. Resuming his place at the table, Jesus asked a rhetorical question to his disciples. It's a question I believe if he would have allowed them to answer. And I think if the gospel writer would have allowed for the responses. Think about the question Jesus, Jesus just asked. Do you understand what I have done for you? Now there's 12 men, at least 12 men in that room whose feet he had washed. If, if the gospel writer would have allowed for responses, how many different responses do you think we would have gotten on that question? 
I mean, Peter's response alone shows us that there would have been a diverse number of responses to that question. So I love what the gospel writer does here and what Jesus does here. He moves right in to the answer. Anticipating the misunderstanding, Jesus goes ahead. Though they had correctly identified Jesus as their Lord and their Master, they needed understanding regarding how he loved the world and how they were to love after he was gone from their presence. And what was the great legacy that Jesus left behind for his disciples? Friends, I believe it was this. Leadership must be motivated by love. Leadership must be motivated by love. Love defined as laying down our lives for our neighbors, and our neighbors are the people God places in our pathways every single day. It's the testimony of the Good Samaritan. Love leads best. How were the disciples to continue to carry on this impossible task? None of them were as amazing as Jesus. None of them had the power of Jesus. None of them were God. How were they to continue on this legacy of what Jesus had begun on earth? How were they to carry it forward? How were they going to become the true cornerstone of his church moving ahead? There's only one answer, and it comes later on in chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love. Love, love, love. And, and church, it's very important that we recognize this isn't some hoochie-coochie, smoochie-smoochie, touchy-feely kind of love. All right, that's not what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about love in the willy-nilly way that our culture and, and people in this world define it, some feely-feely thing. We saw that at the beginning of this text. We see this in the example of Jesus washing Judas' feet. This is a love that works against emotion sometimes. It's a love that works in spite of emotions that might cause us to feel the other way sometimes. Sometimes we're anger, we're angry. Sometimes we have bitterness and hostility, but Jesus puts someone in our pathways that we're called to love regardless of how we might feel. This is the kind of love, friends, that it gets dirty. It stoops down, it it takes garments off, it takes up towels, it grabs hold of dirty, stinky feet and other things, and it cleanses them. It's a purifying kind of love. It's a love that doesn't care as much about how the act is interpreted by others, but more the act itself. Loving in a way that's extravagant, loving others in a way that the unbelieving world might look at as a bit irresponsible. Many people have asked the question over the last month and a half since things have become so real in our lives in the last month and a half, why international adoption? Why did you choose international adoption? That's a fair question, but I I would say this, two things. First, I would say that I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that we did not pursue international adoption. That literally God drew us to it and confirmed it over a six-month period of prayer and wisdom seeking. And second, I would say that in the midst of moving in the direction we truly felt the way the Lord was leading us, truly knew the way that God was leading us, there were some words that never came into our minds. Duty was never one of the words that came into our minds. Obligation, never a word that came into our minds in this process. Responsibility, Program, 
never words that came into our minds. Friends, we just loved in the way that the Lord was leading us and calling us in our life to love. And I would say this for for not us, but for any of us in this room. Every one of us in this room faces these impossible things that the Lord is calling us to. And we might ask ourselves the question, how can we walk forward in that? It seems insurmountable. There's no way I could overcome that. There's no way I could do that. There's no way I could get through that. The mountain's too big. It's too difficult to face. The relationship is too fragmented, too broken. There's no way. How do I move forward? How do I walk forward? And friends, I would just say this has been something that has been at the forefront of our minds and perhaps it may be helpful to someone here today. Motivated by love and compelled by Christ, we step forward. Full of faith that's often accompanied by fear because we don't have all the answers to the questions. We don't know the ins and outs of all the things that God is calling us to, but we step towards the opportunities that God brings us to delight in. And you know what? I'm reminded of that at 2.30 in the morning when I need to get up and go lay between these two beds because these little guys think it's time to be up. This is a delight. I get to do this. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love and in these places we find ourselves in these difficult places god helps us to grow in a greater love for him and a greater love for one another through the people through the patterns through the pathways that he develops in our lives in these moments and as we've gotten lost and scared within this journey that the lord has us on and as we've Search for answers, desperately reaching out, trying to figure out what God might be trying to do. And as the fear overwhelms us in the day-to-day moments, to be honest, we can find great comfort in the example of Jesus in John chapter 13. Look at the words he says in verse 15. Look down at verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Friends, currently in, in our home, 147 North View Lane, Quarryville, PA, our neighbors right now are these two little guys from Haiti that have invaded our hearts and our home. But, but our neighbors are not always your neighbors. And, and for some of you, I have to say, some, some of you have have um, absolutely blessed us in, in amazing ways. And, and I will tell you this, my wife is so encouraged by the testimony of the women in this church right now. Um, it's amazing. She could feel disconnected, but you don't let her. Thank you. Thank you. Because in this, perhaps she's a neighbor for some of you in these days, and we truly appreciate it. But the question that we may be confronted with today is who are your neighbors? Who are the people that God's placed in your pathways to love this way right now, to follow in the example of Jesus' love? I love the the admonition from Jesus at the end of this text. It's beautiful. Because He reminds us, He tells us, and the King James Version is even, I think, even better. Those of you that had King James Version are like, yeah, we always knew it was better, right? Look at, look at verse 17. In the ESV it says, if you know these things, 
In ESV, it says, blessed are you if you do them. But I love it. I love what the King James says. What does the word, instead of blessed, what's the word? Happy. Aren't we always most happy when we're loving, living, and leading in the example of Jesus? I find that to be true in my own life, as stressful as it can be. I don't know how I can stand up here and have joy before you guys some of these Sundays, because I'm going to tell you, it's crazy in our home. It's chaotic. And yet here I am, a smile. And, and I don't know. Jesus produces that. The Lord does that. And I'm so thankful. And I think it's beautiful today as we consider this question, how might our lives look in light of these realities? It's beautiful that here's Jesus on the Passover feast communing with His disciples. And we're going to get to celebrate that together today. Communion with one another. Being thankful for the example of Jesus. For His body. For His blood. And what that means for us. And how it might motivate us to love the people that God's drawn into our pathways. And our elders are going to come forward this morning. And they're going to prepare to serve us the bread and the juice. And I would ask that before they do that you might give pause to pray. Prepare your hearts to receive these things as a reminder of God's great love to us.